Good morning, everyone. It is so wonderful to be with you in the building and online as well. As Archie said, my name is Ryan. Um, I was born and raised in Tooting in southwest London. Anyone in from South London? Make some noise. They're the quiet bunch, the introverts. Um, but my parents aren't originally from here. My dad is from India originally, and my mum is from Sri Lanka originally. Before I was born, my mum was actually the runner-up in the Miss Sri Lanka beauty contest, but I'm told I take after my dad. So you can make of that what you will. I didn't grow up believing in God. I actually found faith at university when a group of friends of mine shared their faith in Jesus with me. And they seemed to have everything that I wanted. I grew up around church. I sang the songs at Christmas. I was in choirs my whole life. But it never meant anything. I thought a belief in God was outdated, irrelevant, had nothing to do with my life. But then at university, everything changed when I invited Jesus into my life. But actually, getting into university didn't go as easily as I had thought. Um, Initially, I actually got all five rejections when I applied, all five choices. They said no. I was hoping at least one would swipe right or however it works. I don't know. They all said no. Had to take a gap year, mainly spent on my sofa watching This Morning and Loose Women on ITV1. They got me through that year. But then I reapplied to university. And I remember the day I went for my interview to get into university. I got the first train in the morning. I left the home in my best suit, and already it wasn't going well. Um, They had asked me a bunch of questions that I just wasn't answering well. I was flustered. I was panicking. And then it came to the end of the interview, and I was already had given up that this was a lost cause. And they asked me about a question that I put on my personal statement. I was um, applying to study English literature, And they asked me about one of the plays that I put on my personal statement. Um, It was a play called King Lear by Shakespeare. And they asked me, Ryan, do you think the ending of King Lear is too tragic? Now, the answer I should have given to this question was yes. Yes, the ending of King Lear is too tragic. Spoilers, um, King Lear is one of Shakespeare's most famous tragedies where, spoilers, almost everyone dies. It is often referred to as one of his most tragic plays of all time. Yes, the ending of King Lear is too tragic. That's what I should have said. But it had been a bit of a long time since I'd last read King Lear when the interview came. And I'd actually forgotten what the ending of the play was. So when they asked me, Ryan, do you think the ending of King Lear is too tragic? I said, no. I think it's actually a very hopeful ending. I think it's a cautionary tale of optimism, joy in the face of adversity. And for some reason, they bought it and I was allowed to study English at university. But the question is a good one, isn't it? Do you think there are situations in life that are too tragic? Or in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of adversity, hostility, pain and difficulty, are there causes for hope? And that's what I want to speak about today, is where to find hope in hopeless times. And these do seem a bit like hopeless times, especially if you're an England fan. No, too soon, okay. Show of hands who watched the match last night. Show of hands who doesn't care about football. And show of hands who hates it when the speaker asks you to show your hands in church, amen. These do seem a bit like hopeless times. I came across an article earlier in the week that said this. It was from the Telegraph on the cost of living crisis. And they interviewed Jenny Blythe, who's a small business owner. And Jenny said this. As a woman in her 30s, the shame of having to go to my parents and ask for a handout is profound. 
I never thought I would find myself in the position where I am now on my knees crying because I don't know how to afford my bills or heat our home. I'm fortunate enough to be in a position to ask for help, but it makes me feel like a failure, and that is a daily struggle. I feel stuck, and some days I feel completely hopeless. Where can you find hope when you're feeling hopeless? Our world can indeed feel hopeless. We see headlines every week, the cost of living crisis, the ongoing effects of the pandemic, a crisis in healthcare, our economy, politics, the ever-growing list of injustices in our world. We marked our first ever South Asian prime minister, our first ever prime minister of color, and immediately the subsequent racism that flooded the headlines, making us ask difficult questions about coming to terms with our own imperial past and its legacy in racism today. Sexism, climate change, poverty, homelessness, the list goes on. And maybe you're here on a personal level too. Maybe you've walked through those doors or joining online today, feeling hopeless. Maybe a situation in your relationships, in your health, in your work. Maybe you're here and you've lost hope. And so we're going to look at a story today that you might read often in this Advent season. We're going to look at the life of Joseph, not the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Joseph, the other one, and see what we can learn about where we can find hope in hopeless times. Because Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1, is facing what I think is a hopeless time. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised to be with his people. He promised to bless them, but that's not where they find themselves in the story. It's not looking good for the people of God. They've been held in slavery. They'd been in exile. Their temple had been destroyed. And now, in Matthew chapter 1, they were under Roman colonization. It's looking pretty hopeless. And to make matters worse, God had been silent for 400 years. Where is God? Where are the promises? Where is the hope? And so if you've got a Bible, look with me at Matthew chapter 1. We're going to kick off in verse 18. And the words are going to come up on the screen as well. Matthew 1 verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together... She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. We don't know much about the life of Joseph. What we do know is he was a carpenter. We're told in this story he was a righteous or faithful man. We know he was a descendant of King David. We know he was Mary's husband. And we know he was Jesus's earthly father. But outside of that, not much is written about the life of Joseph. The last time we see him in the story is when Jesus is 12 in the temple. And that's the last time he's mentioned. Most scholars, in fact, believe he died. 
When, Je- when Mary is at the tomb of Jesus at the cross, she's there as a widow. So we don't know much about Joseph, but there are four things that we can learn from this story about who God is and where we can find hope in hopeless times. And the first thing we learn from this story is this, is that God works through the peacemakers. God works through the peacemakers. Look with me again at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Matthew tells us that Mary was found to be pregnant. Now, this is an indication that Mary perhaps hadn't told Joseph yet, but all signs are pointing to the fact that she was with child. And this was a problem for both Mary and Joseph because this had happened before they'd got married. This was a scandal. Jewish engagement culture at this time was very specific. Each partner would live in their parents' home and as soon as they were engaged, it was as if they were married. In fact, Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband even in the engagement. That was part of the custom. But only after the religious ceremony of the wedding were they able to consummate their marriage. So people would have been doing the maths. Seeing Mary pregnant before the wedding, they would have been asking questions. Nine months ago, carry the one, what's going on? Either Mary had been unfaithful or they'd consummated their married before, consummated the marriage before the wedding. I mean, can you imagine Joseph trying to explain this to his mates down the pub? Imagine the stares he would have gotten. Are you sure that's your kid, Joseph? And in a shame and honour society as this was, this was a massive issue for both Mary and Joseph. Joseph's honour would have been questioned. He would have been laughed at. He would have been shunned. But we're told in verse 19, look at me again, that Joseph was faithful to the law. What that's referring to is Deuteronomy 22, when legally Joseph could have had Mary stoned to death for adultery in the patriarchal society. That was the law. That was what he was entitled to do. What was more common was that people would take them to city council. They'd have a public trial. Mary would be declared guilty, publicly humiliated, and ostracized from the community. She'd be done for. The most effective way for Joseph to preserve his honor would be to shame Mary. It might save his reputation, but it would destroy her. What Joseph does is fascinating. He doesn't cancel Mary. He doesn't screenshot her and send her around the WhatsApp group. He doesn't go on a mad one on Twitter. Now, Joseph is compassionate. Joseph chooses peace. His plan, verse 19, we're told, was to divorce her quietly, to break the engagement. What that means is almost like an out-of-court settlement with no names, She would never be shamed because God uses the peacemakers. You know, our world is increasingly lacking peacemakers. Our world is increasingly lacking peace. Not only are we seeing wars and conflict escalate worldwide, but the discourse in our politics, online, in our media is increasingly hostile, volatile, divisive and hostile. You would have seen in the um, recent days, Will Smith gave an interview where he talked about the infamous incident at the Oscars. And he said, hurt people hurt people. Will Smith said in this interview, there's many nuances and complexities to it. But at the end of the day, I just 
lost it. I guess you never know what someone's going through. And I was going through something. I understand how shocking that was, but I was gone. That was a rage that had been bottled for a really long time. Hurt people hurt people. I'm not having a go at Will Smith. That's the narrative that the world would tell us. Maybe you're here and you have been hurt. How do you respond? Joseph doesn't respond with hurt. Joseph had every right to shame Mary under the law in society. It would have been expected that he would. But Joseph chooses to deny what was rightfully and legally his. He doesn't try to shame Mary. He doesn't try to humiliate her. He doesn't come at her, even though he's facing ridicule. Joseph chooses to be a peacemaker. Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And you see it in Jesus' own life. On the night of his arrest before he was taken to the cross, when Peter chops off the ear of the centurion, Jesus chooses peace and he heals the ear. In a world that is increasingly divided and hostile and full of pain, would we choose peace? Would we not choose hurt, but choose to heal? Because God works through the peacemakers. Don't hit back, bring peace. Do you really wanna send click on that email? Sure, you could, but do you want to? If Joseph hadn't had taken the time to think, Matthew tells us he considered these things. He considered, he thought about his actions instead of lashing out. If he hadn't done, he would have missed the miracle that God was about to do through him because Joseph chose to be a peacemaker. God works through the peacemakers. The second thing we learn from this story is that God speaks to those who respond. Joseph has made up his mind. He'll divorce her quietly, an out-of-court settlement. But there's still a pretty major flaw in his plan because the baby would still be born and people would still ask questions. Joseph, are you sure Mary was telling you the whole truth? People would think he's the father or they've been together before they were married. What was Joseph to do? His plan didn't solve that problem. But watch with me again. Verse 20, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It looks like Joseph is trapped. He's stuck. There's no way out. And yet God intervenes. The angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph in a dream. But this is crazy to take Mary home as his wife. But Joseph doesn't question. He doesn't say what if or but. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. The angel didn't tell him all the details. The angel didn't tell him what was to come. The angel didn't say what was on the other side of the yes. He didn't tell him that yes would be inconvenient. The angel didn't tell Joseph that obeying God and following his will would be costly. He didn't tell him he'd have to travel 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the census on a donkey with a heavily pregnant woman. Joseph had no idea the weight of this yes. And what does God do? God gives him another instruction. A few verses later in Matthew 2 verse 13, we read this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Here we go again. The angel said, get up, 
Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Joseph says yes to the angel. He goes along with God's plan for his life, even though it seems crazy to obey. And what does God do again? He says, actually, this child that you've just said yes to is gonna cost you your lives if you stay where you are. King Herod is jealous. He's gonna kill all the firstborns. I need you to go now. And so Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus become refugees. They become asylum seekers and they flee to Egypt. Joseph says yes again. But then what happens in Matthew 2 verse 19, a few verses later? Then Herod died and an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Joseph doesn't say, are you sure? Have you checked what's going on? He just gets up, verse 21, takes the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. We don't know very much about Joseph. Very little is recorded about his life. But from what we do know about the life of Joseph, there is a very clear pattern. God speaks, Joseph acts. God speaks, Joseph acts. God tells him to take Mary as his wife, even though it's costly, he obeys. God tells him to move his whole family to Egypt, even though it would be terrible and crazy and they would be persecuted, he obeys. God tells him to move back, he does it. God speaks to those who will act. The angel tells him to do many things. The angel even tells him to name the baby Jesus. Now this would have been denying Joseph his patriarchal right to name his child. After all, Joseph Jr. has a pretty good ring to it. Joseph denies himself. Joseph wanted to make God's name great, not his own. The angel takes away all these choices for him. God is the manager now. God is making the shots. God is calling the plays in his life. You know, the minute you let Jesus into your life is the same moment you relinquish control of it. Your agenda, your plans, your timings. If we're committed to following Jesus, we have to be committed to laying down control of our lives too. We may not make a name for ourselves, but watch what God will do through your yes. A lot of the time we think, I wish God would speak to me. Wouldn't it be great if God would tell me who to date, what job to go for? I would love for God to speak to me. The question isn't, will God speak? The question is, will we obey him when he does? You know, as you read God's word, as you meditate on his promises, you will find that God will begin to speak to you by his word through his spirit. And suddenly over time, your will, your desires will begin to be aligned with the promises of God, the purposes of God in your life. And the question is, when God does that, when he prompts you by his spirit, will you act? Because God speaks to those who act. And this is countercultural. This week, Oxford Dictionary announced their word of the year that for the first time in history was chosen by public vote. And do you know the word that the public, that's us, chose to define our year? It was goblin mode. You heard of this? Goblin mode. For those of you who haven't heard of it, the term refers to a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms and expectations. Goblin mode. Joseph wasn't in goblin mode. 
And I know some of you might be here thinking, Ryan, goblin mode is not what I need right now, but I do just need a day off. It's been hard. I'm facing shots at every angle. Life is coming at me pretty hard right now. God doesn't cause us to suffer. He doesn't will that for our life. But a culture of self-denial is countercultural. That isn't what the world is telling us. The world is saying, just go into goblin mode. Just do whatever you want. But that isn't God's will for our lives. God speaks. He has good plans for your life. He loves you. He made you on purpose for a purpose. He has hand made you. You are his much loved possession. God will speak to you. Will you act when he does? Joseph is a safe pair of hands and God trusts him with precious cargo. I think it's because he knows that when he speaks, Joseph will act. We may not feel like we feature much in God's story, but will we play our part well? When God speaks, will we respond? Will we act? It may be costly. It will require us to trust, but will we obey? Because God speaks to those who act. But the third thing we learn from this story is that God can work miracles out of the ruins. God can work miracles out of the ruins. You know, Matthew is taking a huge risk to include this story at the start of his gospel. This gospel was meant to be the good news announcing the risen King Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. Matthew had an important job. Why would you include this at the start? People like they would today would ask questions. Are you sure, Matthew? If you were gonna make something up, this is, this is not gonna win you any, any favours. And opponents could easily say, as they would today, really, a virgin birth? Are we sure Mary was telling the whole truth? His account would lose credibility. Why would he risk all this? Well, Advent, the season we're in, isn't really about a birth. It's about a coming. That's what the name Advent means, the coming, the planned for arrival of the promised Messiah. And like any good story, The plot has been woven the whole time. God has placed seeds of hope throughout the Old Testament. And Matthew gives us a look into this in his gospel. He makes a priority of constantly saying, just like the prophets told or just as it was written. He's showing you, guys, this is what has been written all along. And Matthew begins his gospel by laying clues. In Matthew 1 verse 1, the very first verse, we read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew begins this really long. I mean, it takes up like almost a whole page in my Bible of names after names after names. It's a pretty underwhelming start to a story, don't you think? Just flick the page and start on page two. No one will know. What is Matthew doing? Actually, Matthew is doing something really important in this. He calls him a son of Abraham. He's reminding the readers that Abraham, who couldn't have a child with Sarah, but God intervenes and miraculously they have a child. This is who God is. He's in the business of working miracles out of the ruins. So he calls him son of David. He's reminding the people of the promise that he made to King David. Matthew is reminding his audience who God is, but also he has the precedent of doing the impossible in unexpected ways. In this genealogy, read it if you have time later. There are five women in a patriarchal society. This was strange to do, but Matthew includes gender outsiders. In this list, Matthew, most of them who he includes are Gentiles, Canaanites, Moabites. In other words, there are racial 
outsiders. Matthew includes Rahab, who was a prostitute, and David and Uriah's wife, who were adulterers. In other words, moral outsiders. What's Matthew doing? He's saying no one is excluded from the love of God. That this story that God is telling is for everyone, even those excluded by culture, even those who are persecuted, who are marginalized, who are overlooked, who are forgotten. Nobody is left behind. This is Jesus's family tree. It's like his CV. This is where he would boast about who he is. And this is how he chooses to do it. And Jesus's life is full of unexpected things. It's full of miracles. He goes around spending his life with the least, the last, the lost, the broken, the hurting, and he works miracles. He heals. He brings hope. He raises the dead. And then Jesus worked the ultimate miracle from the ruins of the cross when on the third day he rose again, defeating all darkness, all suffering, all hopelessness. And Matthew is saying, this is who our God is. And because of that, just like Joseph, we can have hope. This is who our God is. He works miracles. He does the impossible here and now. And we can be a people of hope because of it. The author C.S. Lewis, who was famous for writing the Narnia storybooks, after the Second World War, did a series of BBC radio broadcasts, which were then written into a book called Mere Christianity. And in these broadcasts, he said this, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It doesn't mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. But if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Because God can work miracles from the ruins. Maybe you're here today watching online and you feel like your life is in ruins. The promise of the gospel is that out of the ruins, miracles can happen. Hope can be brought forward because Jesus, the risen King, is alive today and he is moving in power by his spirit. God can work miracles from the ruins. But the final thing we learn from this story is the good news is God with us. Look with me again, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew tells us that he's to be given the name Jesus. Jesus was the Hebrew translation of um, Joshua or Yeshua, which would have reminded the people of God about Joshua who brought them into the promised land out of captivity. Jesus was actually a very popular name at the time of Matthew chapter one. Mary gets told to name the child Jesus, but only Joseph gets told the reason. He'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. No one had this name. This was a one of a kind name. It's a title, God with us. Whatever you're facing now, God is with you. This would have been crazy to Matthew's original audience. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, were, there were very strict rules about how they had to engage with God. In fact, Moses couldn't even look at God. He couldn't even behold the glory. The people of God couldn't write Yahweh. They couldn't even pronounce the name. And yet Matthew says, the angel said, Emmanuel, God with us. This is crazy. This is amazing. Jesus' life begins with the promise that he is with you. 
And it ended with a promise that he will be with you. And the last words that Jesus says before he ascended, in Matthew 28, he says to his disciples, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God is not distant. He's not far off. He doesn't leave us guessing. You see, a lot of the times in the world, I think we can feel like God is a bit separate from our problems. Like God is up here in the clouds, in the heights, and we're down here. And this is painful. There's struggle here. There's hurt here. There's pain here. And there feels like there's such a distance. God, where are you in the middle of my questions? Where are you in the middle of my pain? But he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, the good news of the gospel is that God didn't just leave us to our own devices. He didn't just leave us to suffer. No, God became man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came down. We don't have to wonder where is God in times of hopelessness. He's right there with us. And he sent his one and only son who lived the life we couldn't live. He lived a perfect, pure, blameless life. He took all of our pain, all of our hopelessness, all of our sin and shame and struggling on a cross. And out of the ruins of that crucifixion, a miracle came. God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus, the risen king. No matter what struggles you're facing in life, God is not distant. He has made himself known. Earlier this year, I went to spend some time with my mum. She's moved out of Toosing. Can you believe it? She lives in Kent now. And I went to see her for the weekend and we were watching um, a Chelsea match on TV, which was traumatic for me because I'm a Manchester United fan. And around, um, during the match, um, I got up and went to the other side of the room to get a drink of water. And that was the last thing I remember. I, I blacked out. And when I came to, my, all my family were uh, surrounding me. The dog was barking frantically. We found out that I'd had a seizure. And actually, I'd had multiple over the last year. I just had no idea. Mum rushed me to A&E. I had to take time off work, about three months in total. I had to live with my mum because I had to be in constant supervision. I couldn't be by myself. I was waiting for scans. We didn't even know what was going on. It was a really scary time. All of the things that I'd held dear, my, my work, my friends, I couldn't have any interaction with them. I felt isolated. I was scared because I had no idea what was going on. I'm doing much better now. The doctors worked out what it was. It was a problem with my heart. But in that time, which could have and should have been, for many reasons, one of the darkest times I think I'd ever experienced, facing all these questions. But not just that. I think like all of us, I had time to deal with the disappointment and hurt of the pandemic. Years of questions and, and doubt and pain and hurt kind of came to the front during that time. But actually, what I remember that time by was God's presence with me, God with us, even in the midst of that pain. It's not that the pain wasn't there and I wasn't miraculously healed, but even in the midst of all of that, I knew God with me. Do you know today God with you, that he's not far off, that he's not distant because he sent his one and only son, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. God works through the peacemakers and he sent the Prince of Peace who didn't respond to us how we deserved, but he chose peace. He chose forgiveness on the cross. Jesus who said, Lord, not my will, but yours. And God used 
God spoke to him and Jesus obeyed. He went to the cross and God who worked a miracle from the ruins. Jesus conquered all hopelessness, all suffering, all pain and even death. The greatest miracle the world has ever known, Jesus, the risen King. And now you can be confident that God isn't distant, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. When we sing it this Christmas, when we sing it tonight at the carol service, Jesus our Emmanuel, would we be filled with the wonder that may the shepherds worship, the angels bow down and say, Jesus is alive and he reigns. There is one name who heals. There is one name who has power. There is one name who's victorious. There is one name who brings hope and his name is Jesus. Amen.